would you turn uh, back with me to uh, Daniel chapter 5. This is, is, uh, I find anyway, a a fascinating and dramatic chapter of God's word. But it's also a fearful one in many ways. Um, And it's all the more fascinating and interesting, I think, because it comes after Daniel 4. um, And uh, what is in Daniel 4 is effectively the personal testimony of, uh, of the great King Nebuchadnezzar. And I think uh, Daniel, who, who writes these things, who has put these two next to each other for a, for a reason, for a purpose, and uh, to strike this deliberate comparison between the two. Uh, one, Nebuchadnezzar, is humbled and finds mercy and confesses God as Lord. Uh, the other turns his back uh, on God and sets himself up against God, deliberately provoking God and finds, at the end, wrath and, and judgment and death for himself. And uh, this chapter reminds me of um, just just um, near Bridge End. You can you can go to the seaside and walk along the cliffs by uh, Southern Down and by Ogmore by Sea, and all along that bit of cliff there, there are these massive signs. I mean, they are huge. They're about as big as that uh, screen up there, with big red writing on them saying "Warning: Cliffs. You know, don't go too close. You'll fall off because the cliffs just sort of. It's not really a steep edge. It kind of just slowly goes off the edge, and you could easily fall over without realizing." Uh, now, this chapter is a bit like those signs. Now, what are the signs for? They're not there so that when you fall off the cliff, you can say, oh, well, we told you so. The signs are there to stop you falling off the cliff, aren't they? They're there to warn you before you get there. Their purpose is to, uh, to avoid your, uh, your end over the cliff. And so this, uh, this chapter is a bit like that, I think. It's not here for us to kind of just uh, cluck our tongues at, at Belshazzar and say, what a terrible man, or to, or to gloat over the fact that he gets his comeuppance in the end. But it's here to take the warning for ourselves that God's patience will not run forever uh, with those who turn from him. Um, Stuart Elliott, uh, you, you may be aware, has a good commentary on, uh, on Daniel, little little commentary. It's quite easy to read. And he, he, in his commentary, talks about an invisible line, which I thought was a helpful picture. A line known only to God he says, between God's patience and God's wrath. And uh, he describes uh, people who are not Christians yet um, as having many opportunities to turn to God, many invitations. And God pleads and beseeches and persuades, and his desire is that all should seek him and find life. And then he says this. Um, here's the warning. He says, those who persist in walking the road that they have chosen one day cross the invisible line. They cross the thin boundary between God's patience and his wrath At last, God says, enough is enough and gives them up. There is no special road which leads to hell. You just have to stay on your present road long enough, he says. And he's right. Uh, So he goes on to say people are not lost because they're great sinners, because God can save great sinners, and he has done so many times. But they perish because their hearts are pockets of resistance to God. They resist God. They stifle their conscience. They never uh, seek his mercy. They never approach uh, the, the, the saviour given to us, the Lord Jesus, but they remain stubborn and arrogant and self-willed. And, and Belshazzar is an example of that for us. And so he's a warning to us uh, again today. There is a line that we may cross over which only is, is the judgment of God. So we take note of this sign and we say, well, that's not where we want to go. It's not where we want to be. We don't want to be like him. Uh, that we might humble ourselves, that we might come to the saviour, to the Lord Jesus. Uh, he is our only hope. Uh, apart from him, uh, we deserve all the wrath that God gives to us. But in Christ, we might know forgiveness and we might know peace with him. And so if we give up our pride and we come before him, before our king, 
uh, we may find forgiveness and life in him. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar did in, in Daniel 4, and, and uh, you can read that for yourself later. And that's what Belshazzar refused to do. So he's a big warning for us today. So it's a solemn passage, I know. But I want us just to look through it just with, with four points, really. And I want us to look first at Belshazzar, Belshazzar's insolence. Just look, at, just look at quite what he did. Examine just for ourselves to see what was, what, what was so terrible that brought God's judgment on him. And second, I want us to look at God's intervention, which was dramatic. Uh, so dramatic it stopped his, uh, his drunken party <laughs> dead. And then I want us to listen to Daniel's sermon that he has an opportunity to preach into this situation. And then finally we'll see how Belshazzar's end comes about. And uh, we'll learn some lessons along the way as we do so. So let's, uh, let's look first. Let's work our way through. Let's look at Belshazzar's insolence first. And I want to say this really by way of application. Be careful how you treat God. Be careful how you think of God. Be careful how you respond to him. So the contrast between these two kings in these two chapters is, uh, is sharp in a number of ways. First, uh, because in this book of Daniel, if you read it through yourself, you spend a fair bit of time with Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of, of Daniel's book, and you get to know him a little bit. You hear him and see him in different ways. You get a kind of gentle introduction to him, and uh, then you get uh, three more chapters where he features prominently. And when you read Daniel, you get the impression that uh, the writer... He's quite sympathetic, really, to, to Nebuchadnezzar on the whole, even though Nebuchadnezzar's pride is obvious and his folly is obvious. His greatness was, was also obvious, was clear. He really did rule his kingdom and his empire well, and he achieved a great deal. Uh, so when he looks across his kingdom and says, isn't this, isn't this great? In a sense, he's right. So you remember earlier on in Daniel, there's a, an image uh, there's a, 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 a there's a, um, a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has of this great statue, and the head of gold is him. It is his kingdom. It is his reign. But he has a dream of a great tree, and he is the tree. That's his kingdom. And then, uh, of course, we have Daniel chapter 4, his, his obvious conversion to some kind of personal faith. Uh, so that's Nebuchadnezzar on the one hand. On the other hand, Belshazzar is a whole different story. And so when you, uh, when you get to chapter 5, you sort of land with a bit of a bump, really, because you don't get any, any kind of preamble, any introduction. It's just straight in to this king. And he arrives with all of his uh, uh, alcohol-swigging splendor uh, into this party. There's no mention of his achievements. There's no mention of the character of his rule or anything. It just comes in straight like this. Let me just read it to you again. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. And while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets, gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, I think this verse is important, they praised the gods of, silver, of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood and stone. Um, probably uh, Belshazzar is not the, the direct son of Nebuchadnezzar. It may have been that there was another one in between. Um, and so, you know, he's saying father in a sense of, uh, one, of his, one of his ancestors. But what's clear from what Daniel says a bit later on is that, that Belshazzar knows about Nebuchadnezzar. He knows the story. He knows uh, probably what his grandfather did, what happened to him, how he was humbled. 
and he knows about his conversion. And so he knew about the exiles from Judah as well, and he knew something about Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in chapter 4, uh, the, the way that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged the Most High God and turned from his idols. And he knew, Belshazzar knew full well where these gold and silver goblets had come from, and he knew what he was doing when he called for them to be fetched out of storage to be used at this party that he was throwing. Now, one commentator puts it like this. Why should God make such a fuss about the use of a set of golden cups from a temple he seems to have deserted, belonging to an era now well in the past? And I say, that's a good point, isn't it? But verse 23 here tells us that in doing this, in using these sacred objects, Belshazzar had set himself up against the God of heaven. So he gave orders for these cups to be brought. Um, not just for different cups, you know, not just because he wanted some more cups, but for these specific cups to be brought in. He knew they were holy to God. He knew that um, they, were, uh, they were a part of the worship of God from Israel. And, uh, and then while they were swigging the wine from them, he and his whole party effectively kind of shook their fists at God uh, by praising uh, other gods, by praising the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. That's just about every idol that they could think of, isn't it, I think. In abusing and misusing these objects dedicated to God, he was, he was really abusing and uh, insulting and denying the God whose name was connected with them. Uh, you might say they were just objects. One commentator says, contempt for God's stuff is the same as contempt for God himself. It, it, was, a, it was a pointed thing that, that Belshazzar was doing. And so his sort of claim really is, well, the God who is supposed to be the God of these cups is nothing. And uh, our gods are the ones who are real. This is uh, Belshazzar's insolence. And it's, it's, it's quite breathtaking. It's quite staggering. Uh, given, given what had happened to Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, given what had happened to God's people way back as well, but given what had happened to just uh, this uh, ancestor of his, it is quite staggering how he behaves. It makes a, a fool of him, and he will pay the consequences for it, as we'll see. So I want to say at this point, by way of application, this, be careful how you treat God. And you might say, well, we'll never, we'll never do anything like this. But just remember, after the, uh, after the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments, the first one is that uh, you shall have no other gods. The second is that you'll make no image, no idols. What's the third commandment? Do you know what's the third of the Ten Commandments? Well, it's that you not misuse God's name. And now that means surely, and it meant surely more for Israel than just using God's name as a kind of expletive or a swear word. They would never have dreamt of doing that anyway. It means treating him lightly and flippantly and trivially. It means not respecting who he is. And that can also mean, I think, misusing the things of God as well. When you treat God's word lightly, I think it is a similar kind of sin. When you treat the means of grace that God has given lightly, I think you are dabbling in Belshazzar's sin there. If you treat you know, baptism or the Lord's Supper or uh, the, the church and the gathering of the church as if they were nothing, you, if, if you harm God's church by just, just being apathetic really, and you're in effect treating God with contempt. So there is a warning here for us. There is a warning not to treat God like that. Instead, to remember that our God is a consuming fire, as his word says, that he is worthy of our highest honor and reverence and respect, that he's holy, and we are to be holy too. And remember that if he has if saved you, 
it is only by the greatest sacrifice this world has ever seen, as we, as we saw this morning, the one who gave up his son for us all, there in the death and the punishment of the Lord Jesus for us, is our means of salvation. And so, um, with the, the friendship, with the love of God, with the kindness of God, there's also, there ought to be that deep reverence and honor and, and, a, and a sort of solemn seriousness about the way that we think of God and treat God and the way we th- treat the things of God too. So take Belshazzar's warning here, seriously. Be careful how you treat God. Secondly, let's look at God's intervention then into this uh, man's life. Uh, he had uh, set himself up against God and uh, had provoked God and he'd taken these things and uh, taken these goblets and had drank wine and praised his gods from them. What did God think of this? Well, (laughs) you you don't have to to move very further in the story to find out. Um, Look at verse uh, verse 5 there. Um, Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. It happened immediately that uh, uh, that Belshazzar had praised his false gods. And uh, the fingers of this hand appear, and they write on the wall in a visible place, right by the lampstand. Apparently in the feasting halls of, of that time, there would have been a platform, I suppose something a bit like this, the top table would have been on it, where all the most important people would sit. And it's right on the wall, right in front of the light, that it, this message appears. There's no arm, there's no body, there's just the fingers of the hand, it says. And as the king watches, he is sobered up almost immediately. Uh, we, we read rather humorously that he turned pale and... Uh, his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. I thought this was funny, but it, it, I don't know how, I, I, don't, I haven't got original languages, but somebody told me, or I read somewhere, the literal wording of the last part of that verse there is, the knots of his loins were loosed, <laughs> which probably, I don't have to go into detail, you can probably imagine, maybe, maybe he was so scared, he was so scared that uh, uh, he soiled himself there. It's dramatic, it's a frightening intervention. And it's called for by his, by his attitude to God, by the way that he treats God. Like uh, Nebuchadnezzar did before him, in other parts of the story, he calls for his experts to find out what, these, what this writing means. And just as before, they are absolutely useless to give any help or guidance to him. And Daniel is showing us, isn't he, by writing these things, just the, the utter bankruptcy of of the paganism of Nebuchadnezzar's court and Belshazzar's court. They, they can't help. They don't know. And even when they're given great incentive, the promise of clothes and riches and power, they can do nothing to help here. And in God's prov- providence, that served well to even further terrify uh, this king, Belshazzar. Uh, why could they not read the writing or offer the meaning? I, I don't know. Maybe they knew what was coming because it, what happened next happened very quickly and they didn't want to say, maybe. Maybe they just didn't understand. Um, there are a few commentators I read who thought maybe they couldn't even see the writing. <laughs> it was only, only Belshazzar who could perhaps see it. And uh, so they're sort of going along with him, but they don't really know what to do. They can't see anything. Either way, they can't help him. And then into the story, um, we have one of, uh, one of the Bible's unnamed characters, really on whom the whole story turns. And uh, there, are, there are lots of characters like this, and it's, help, it's interesting to look out for them sometimes. Think of, uh, in, uh, in 1 Samuel 25, there's a, a guy called Nabal, and his, his, uh, one of his servants just intervenes to make sure that David doesn't do something rash and kill innocent blood. Or think of Naaman, and uh, Naaman's little slave girl, who just uh, gives a word and 
uh, and tells him about the prophet. Well, there's a, a character here like that. She's unnamed. She's just called the queen, verse 10. Um, maybe she is the queen's, the queen mother, we're not sure. Um, she's obviously not part of Belshazzar's harem because she's not there with the wives and concubines. They're already at the party. But she has enough status to be able to approach the king and speak to him. And so it's possible she was Nebuchadnezzar's widow. And uh, maybe that's why she uh, says what she says uh, in, uh, in verse 11 about, uh, about your father the king. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, she points him out explicitly. Either way, whoever she is, she points the way to Daniel as the answer to the problem. She speaks highly of Daniel. Uh, she says, there is a man in your kingdom, verse 11, who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight, intelligence, wisdom like that of the gods. So she's sure that Daniel will be able to tell the king and help him and tell him what this writing means. God's intervention. From Belshazzar's viewpoint, God's intervention just makes him more terrified and uh, all the more as he fails to understand what it all means. He's been pray, uh, provoking God, maybe with some false belief that he's, you know, the gods he worshipped were real and, and maybe they're at his beck and call if he shows them some honour and he's trying to get some help from them, I don't know. Perhaps the party was... His party was an attempt to appease those gods and sort of return to the old ways, maybe. But he's going to learn very quickly, isn't he, that there is only one God who is sovereign. Uh, there's only one God, and it was the one that he has blasphemed. And so he was brought to the end of himself. Uh, he may have had opportunity to repent, we don't know. Others have been saved at the 11th hour, haven't they? Think of Nebuchadnezzar himself, think of the thief on the cross. But at the end of uh, verse 9 there, he has nothing left. He has no other trust. And with the Queen Mother's words, he has a commendation to give respect to Daniel, uh, God's man. But it, it, it's clear as he calls for Daniel that he only wants Daniel to solve the puzzle, really. He doesn't really want to come under the authority of God. So here's my second lesson from God's intervention here. Uh, remember that God is sovereign, that he is, he is the king. He is on the throne. He is ruling and reigning. There is no other, and he's not a tool to be manipulated or used for our own ends. He's the one true and living God, the uh, eternal I am, the one who is self-existent. And uh, Belshazzar here stands as a stark warning of where rebellion against him and against the Lord Jesus uh, takes us. But this story is also an encouragement, isn't it, for God's people facing Belshazzars uh, here and further on in their history. Uh, they may have looked uh, at uh, kings who were oppressing them and rulers, and uh, the uh, times appeared to have all the power. But remember what Nebuchadnezzar learned. This is verse 35. I think uh, Nathaniel read this to us. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases. Sorry, this is Daniel 4:35. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Those were Nebuchadnezzar's words. They were his testimony when he knew who God was. He said, he, he, he does as he pleases. He's not beholden to anyone. Uh, we can't control him. No one can hold back his hand or say, what have you done? No one can question him because he is the king. Maybe, maybe God has brought you to the end of yourself by some circumstance. Maybe he's pulled you away from all the other helps and all the other trusts that perhaps you've had and leaned upon. And if that's true, then maybe God is dealing with you. Uh, humble yourself before him. 
uh, take Belshazzar's uh, uh, experience here as a warning that there is a line. And uh, if you cross it, then there's judgment. But come and submit to him. Come and submit to the Lord Jesus as king. And run to him as savior. And forsake your sin. He still saves. Uh, he still saves wretches like us by his amazing grace, doesn't he? We might come to him and trust him and find life in him. God intervened uh, in Belshazzar's uh, provocation here. Now, let's have a listen to Daniel's sermon because this is, uh, this is helpful. Um, look at Daniel's sermon to this king. Um, Daniel, it seems, probably would have been, may have been sidelined after Nebuchadnezzar's day. He doesn't seem to have been there anyway. He doesn't seem to have been invited either to the party or to help with the puzzle until this queen mother remembers him. And so eventually he is uh, sent for uh, by Belshazzar. And even, even now, it seems to me, <laughs> with, with the writing on the wall in front of him, literally, uh, Belshazzar can't sort of help himself but give a little dig here. Do you look at verse 13 for a second? He's, Daniel's brought in. And remember, the king is terrified and anxious and stressed by what's going on. And he says to Daniel, knowing full well that he was, he says, are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? So just a, that seems to me just a little dig there, um, a little disdain for who Daniel is, a little reminder of who has the power here. And then um, as a further reminder in his request for help, he thinks he can buy Daniel off with gifts, so he... He, he uh, thinks he will incentivize him, offering him a cloak of pur purple and a gold chain and this position in the kingdom, as if, as if that will make Daniel more uh, helpful to him. I love what Daniel says in response here, in verse 17. He says, keep your gifts for yourself. <laughs> Just keep, keep that nonsense. I don't want anything to do with that. I uh, saw someone say once, that's the mark of a, of a true prophet. They say, keep your money, and here's the truth. <laughs> I, I, it's, not, it's not a question of money. It's not a question of being paid. Daniel is not swayed one little bit by Belshazzar's digs at him or disdain for him or his incentives to him. Because Daniel knows what the writing on the wall means. And what it means is that God is still on the throne. God is still in control. God is not silent. He's not disinterested. When men like Belshazzar, uh, who seem to have all the power, kind of shake their fists at God or treat him lightly. That truth from Psalm 2. We could have read Psalm 2, couldn't we? It's a, a great psalm. When the nations rage and uh, when they shake their fists at God, Psalm 2 says God laughs and rebukes his enemies in his anger. Well, what was God's response to Belshazzar's blasphemy here? It is to, to laugh and deride him because it is God who calls the shots, not Belshazzar. Daniel is fully convinced of this, I'm sure, and so he's not intimidated at all by the king. He's God's man. He will tell God's truth to him. And before he even gets to the the riddle of the, the writing on the wall. He has a message for this little king from the supreme king of kings. And it's a history lesson which uh, Belshazzar badly needed. He needed to be reminded. Nebuchadnezzar had sovereignty, greatness, power, glory. But he reminds Belshazzar of the fact that it was all a gift. It was all given by God. And in a moment, God was able to strip Nebuchadnezzar in every sense, of all of that. God could do that if he so wished, and he did. Until Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets them over anyone he wishes. That's what he says. And now, uh, after giving a little history lesson to Belshazzar, the pointed finger of judgment 
comes in Daniel 7. He says, in effect, to Belshazzar, you've crossed that line. You've crossed it. He had set himself up against the God of heaven by using these sacred things, and he'd set himself up by failing to honor God. I wondered why, um, why this particular sign was given to Belshazzar. Why, why, this, why this way? Why not just a word from Daniel or another prophet? Why, why this weird and unusual uh, sign was given him, the hands, the fingers writing on the wall? I don't know if this, is, if this is the answer, but it seems to me that there's, there's not many times when God's fingers are mentioned in Scripture like this. But there is another time that I could think of when God's hands or fingers are mentioned, and that is in the giving of the Ten Commandments. They were inscribed by the finger of God, it says in Scripture. And it was the first of those, uh, uh, the first three of those commandments that Belshazzar broke so blatantly in what he was doing. So there may be something in that, I don't know. But also in Daniel's words here, God holds Belshazzar's life in his hands, but he'd failed to honor him. And so by that same hand, if you like, the judgment is drawn. So here's my application at this point. Uh, listen, listen when God speaks and humble yourself. I think at this point it was too late for Belshazzar. I think his own heart was hardened so that he wouldn't have turned. You remember when Daniel preached to Nebuchadnezzar in a similar way, he urged Nebuchadnezzar to repent and humble himself because there was still a hope that God might relent and withhold his judgment. There's not a hint of that here. The message is Belshazzar has not humbled himself and so judgment is coming. God is not quick to anger, is he? He's, he's expressly slow to anger. He's not hot-headed. He is patient and he gives opportunities to acknowledge him and to recognize him, to honor him, and to repent, and to turn, and to find life in him. He's given time, he's given his word, and he's given preachers, and he's given circumstances perhaps in your life, and your conscience, and the witness of the world around you, and the witness of others perhaps, maybe some here in the church as you've heard their story, so that you might come to him. And so the question this evening is, have you listened? Have you listened? Well, Belshazzar ought to be a warning that you ought to listen. Humble yourself before it's too late. If you have come to God, if you've come to the Lord Jesus, uh, don't treat God's patience with contempt. Don't uh, repeat your sin. But humble yourself again and honor him. There are a number of times when warnings come in scriptures. One of them is from the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 10, there is this warning. Um, and it uh, refers back to the law of Moses. And it says this, Hebrews 10, 28, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it's mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing, says Hebrews, to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, don't try his patience anymore. Come, come and honor him and take hold of the Lord Jesus, his Savior, who he gave for us and rest in him. Well, that's Daniel's sermon. And there's just one more point I want to make. And it's uh, just to think about Belshazzar's end really here and uh, to take this warning seriously. Um, his end is decisive and it is abrupt uh, and devastating. Um, 
there is a, a word play going on in the message that comes to him, as, as you can probably see from the words we've read there in the scriptures and the way it's laid out. The, the three words there are these uh, small weights that sort of go down in descending order. And the first one can also mean numbered, and the second can mean weighed, and the third can mean divided. So the message is kind of numbered, weighed, and divided, but it's kind of symbolic of what's happening to him. And this is what uh, one commentator puts. So this is Dale Ralph Davis. So he's well worth reading on it. And he puts it this way. He says, in, he interprets, Daniel interprets the writing on the wall, which seems to consist of terms designating these weights, the, the minor, the shekel, and the half minor, but which Daniel interprets via wordplay as indicating that God has got Belshazzar's number. Verse 26, that he is a lightweight, verse 27, and his kingdom will split, verse 28. And then he puts it like this. In, finish, in, in short, he says, God says to Belshazzar, you are finished, flimsy, and fractured. <laughs> I thought that was good. You are finished, your number's up, you are a lightweight, you are flimsy, and the kingdom will be broken. And that night, we read, the Persians entered the kingdom, entered the city. Well, Belshazzar, here's the message, and he gives Daniel the gifts anyway, but his end is abrupt. Verse 13, that night, that very night, he is he's slain, his life is over. So his end is as abrupt as his arrival, really, and I think that's probably deliberate. That's the writer's point, surely. There is no future for those who shake their fists at God and uh, resist him and are happy the way they are and think that they don't need him. So here is the final lesson really from this chapter. Take this warning seriously. Don't be careless and blasé with your life and think that it doesn't matter. God made you for his glory, his word says. And to break the greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. To break that commandment must be the greatest sin, mustn't it? And besides that, we have, we have not kept that second one either, have we, to love our neighbours as ourselves. So we've we fail the whole law of God. But stories like this one, stories like Belshazzar's, are not, to, uh, are not to lead us to despair. They are to lead us to life. They're meant to be like those signs on the cliff to stop us from going this way. They are to lead us away from Belshazzar and his pride, and they are to lead us uh, into the arms of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, who shows us mercy, who came to, uh, to show us grace. They are to make us fear falling into God's hands of judgment that we might come to him who will save us. Um, we, uh, we went through as a church um, a catechism uh, last year or year before. And uh, one of the questions was this, one of the first questions. What is our only hope in life and death? I wonder what you would answer to that. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer given is this. Our only hope in life and death is not ourselves, not our false gods, not, our, not anything of us. It's that we belong body and soul, in life and death, to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We belong to him by humbling ourselves, crying out to him, forsaking all of the hopes, not resting on ourselves or anything else, turning from our sin and coming to the one who alone can forgive our sins and give us life. And, and God can do that through his son. He can do that because all the wrath that we deserve has been carried by the Lord Jesus. Uh, we deserved it, but he took it for us and paid the price. So he offers us life in the gospel. So come to Jesus then. Take hold of him by faith. Ask him to forgive you and to keep you and stay close to him and listen to him and love him and serve him. Let me close with these uh, 
these words of hope from, uh, from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 55 says this, verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon. There's a promise of God's word to us. Be careful how you treat God. Know that he's sovereign. Listen when he speaks. Humble yourself. Take this warning seriously and then come and rest in the salvation that Jesus alone can bring.